Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in this week for Jerome McDonald. Last month, the former acting director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement warned that some kids who were separated from their parents when they crossed into the U.S. could become permanently separated. Today, the government says it's reunited all the children under five who are eligible for reunification. So what happens to those kids that aren't eligible? We're going to talk about that now with Catherine Joyce. She's a freelance journalist and author of The Child Catchers, Rescue, Trafficking, and the New Gospel of Adoption. Her latest piece, The Threat of International Adoption for Migrant Children Separated from Their Families, was co-published by The Intercept and the Nation Institute Investigative Fund. Uh, welcome back to Worldview. Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, Catherine, as I mentioned, you know, we had the former actor, acting director of ICE who warned that some of the kids who've been separated might um, become permanently separated. And a, a part of that warning has to do with um, a law that's in place um, that relates to the foster care system. And it's a law known as the Adoption and Family Adoption and Safe Families Act. Can you tell us kind of what's that law and how is it meant to work? Sure. Yeah, I can ex- explain that. Um, the Adoption and Safe Family Act, or or ASFA, uh, has huge bearing on the domestic foster care system. Um, we should certainly talk also about the fact that there are important distinctions between the domestic or state foster care system that we're all used to kind of functioning as part of the child welfare system and the federal foster care system, which is what we're talking about mostly in most cases when we're talking about uh the separated children or unaccompanied alien minor children who are in federal custody. Uh, but first, kind of how, how ASFA plays out in uh, the United States in domestic foster care has been um, in, in one part by putting a sort of time clock uh, on how long children can remain in foster care before their parents' rights are terminated. Um, so this is sort of in theory not not always in practice, sometimes not even often in practice. Uh, But the law holds that if a child has been in state care for 15 out of the last 22 months, uh, that the foster care agency, the child welfare agency in that state or municipality is supposed to shift their goal in the case from reunification to the termination of parental rights. Uh, And this was initially intended to address the fact that lots of children languished for many years in foster care and to facilitate more adoptions out of foster care. Um, It it doesn't always work exactly that way. Many, many children still do languish in foster care. Uh, But in some cases, this has been used to sort of expedite the termination of parental rights for, for parents who might have lost custody because they have a substance abuse issue if they had even a short uh, incarceration period of a year or sometimes even less, that might not leave them with enough time to sort of address the case plan needs. And that is how we see some terminations of parental rights from foster care. And the likelihood, you mentioned that there's two separate systems in place here. There's the state foster care system, and then there is a larger federal system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the state foster care system, I, I would imagine, is actually quite larger. The federal foster care system, what that typically, that's referring to 
the the children who are in the custody of the Office of Refugee uh, Resettlement, or ORR, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services. Which is the, and so, where the kids who have been separated from their parents currently, those children are in that under the care of that department currently. Absolutely. And also a larger pool of children who have been declared previously unaccompanied minors, um, whether or not because they legitimately did cross the border as unaccompanied or whether they've been declared that Mm -hmm. sort of subsequently. Mm -hmm. Um, So the likelihood that somehow this law, which has been around uh, since uh, 1997, 1997. Mm-hmm. which which was meant, as you mentioned, to try and kind of keep kids from languishing in foster care. That's the intent of the law, um, that, that this could potentially be applied to um, these kids who have been separated um, from their parents, either recently who crossed into the border or to other unaccompanied um, kids. Um, You've talked to a lot of people about whether this could could be applied. Um, So what what sort of the was there consensus on whether this could be applied to um, these kids who've been separated? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's it's a complicated question. And and when I was reporting on this, um, because there's been substantial alarm in some quarters that we might see a number of these separated children end up in the the adoption system by way of domestic or state foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had been a lot of concern from people who pay attention to the child welfare system is that, you know, that ASPA mechanism could be triggered and, uh, you know, parents' rights could be terminated because they had been deported or detained. I spoke to several former officials from uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, um, either from the Administration of Children's Services or the ORR, who had served under Obama. Um, And they had a lot of experience with the program as it had been used then uh, Mm -hmm. before Trump was elected. And they said during that time, there were very few adoptions that were coming out of the ORR system. Um, They they really emphasized that the ORR's uh, federal foster care is a separate track from from state foster care and that they have different mandates. Uh, You know, state foster care is, you know, that is a part of the child welfare infrastructure and that is designed to, you know, address issues where there have been questions raised about children's safety. When children have been placed in ORR custody in the past, um, conversely, you know, that was um, usually a product of them coming across the border unaccompanied. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were there were exceptions then as well, um, but there weren't the same there wasn't the assumption that parents had anything to prove in order to regain custody as there usually is in state foster care. So they said to me, you know, there's a whole different intention and meaning um, for ORR's foster care and that they really emphasized removing children very quickly out of federal foster care into the homes of U.S. sponsors who were often relatives, aunts, uncles, grandparents, or family friends, and and that children only were placed in long-term foster care usually if they had uh, no sponsors here in the U.S. Um, So they were saying ASFA just wouldn't apply. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, I did speak to um, a scholar, Lauren Heidbrink, who's an anthropologist at California State University, Long Beach, and She's been one of the few academics who have tracked the long-term trajectories of 
uh, young people who have been placed in ORR uh, custody, whether in foster homes or in some of their centers. And she said that there were, um, if you look at things kind of over the longer term, not just paying attention to what happens immediately, but, but following a case over many more months or years, that there have been adoption outcomes that happen because uh, the status of a child who has been placed first in, in federal foster care with ORR, their legal status around immigration changes. And one way uh, that that happens that's really important to pay attention to, because it's something we should be pr- probably watching pretty closely for in the case of the separated children, is if if the children um, are, are ruled to be a category called special immigrant juveniles, um, and that is for migrant children who are found to have been abused, neglected, or abandoned. Mm. Um, you know, and so in that case, you would sort of, you would be declaring them to have a different legal status and they would have a visa that makes them eligible for residency in the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, and those cases actually are determined not in the immigration courts, but they, they would often go to family courts or probate courts, um, which, you know, family courts being the same ones that deal with domestic foster care cases. And in those cases, um, uh, Professor Heidrink warned uh, that it was very possible that children might be declared abandoned, legally, technically abandoned, in cases uh, where their parents had not actually abandoned them, as we think of it, but rather had been detained or deported. Right, which you um, could so imagine could be happening right in mm-hmm. this case with the separated kids where we've already heard um, that many have many parents have already been deported um, or have been in, unable to reach uh, the location of where their kids have been moved to. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So judges might, they might not understand why a parent isn't showing up for any of these mm-hmm. court proceedings uh, relative to, to custody. And, and that might uh, support their perception that a child has been abandoned. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and I'm talking with journalist Catherine Joyce about the link between migrant children and international adoption. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about the NATO summit. Um, so there's this special category that could be potentially uh, triggered in cases um, where, you know, the parents um, have either been deported or haven't been able to reach their kids. Uh, and there was a case um, back in 2012 um, where a mother who was arrested on immigration charges, she was Guatemalan, um, she was arrested at a uh, at her job and she had she was found to be here illegally and they found that her child could be put up for adoption, correct? Yeah, that's the case of Encarnacion Bell Romero, um, who had been working in a chicken processing plant in Missouri. Um, And when she was uh, detained while at work, her, her infant child uh, first was placed with family members, I understand. And then, from there ended up in in the family of uh, a white adoptive couple who who really pressed um, to make this adoption go through. And ultimately, uh, I guess about five years after um, Bail Romero was detained, uh, that adoption was, was finally kind of made permanent. Um, when a judge ruled that the very fact of this Guatemalan, Guatemalan mother's uh, immigration 
had made her unfit because this is a quote, illegally smuggling herself into the country is not a lifestyle that can provide any stability for the child. Um, so that's that's pretty um, shocking. And it was shocking at the time, but a lot of people are paying attention to it now because it's it's basically saying the very fact of illegal immigration has been used by some judges to declare that parents who have not in other any other way been found to be abusive or neglectful are unfit parents. And actually, when I spoke with the former ORR officials um, who said that they were they were less concerned about the threat of um, ASFA or Adoption Safe Family Act um, being applied than they were about this larger larger category of of children who would be at risk. And and those were the children um, who are often U.S. citizens born to undocumented parents. If those if those undocumented parents are detained or deported as U.S. citizens, those children would, as we understand, pretty automatically go into the state foster care system. And in those cases, ASFA would definitely apply. Mm-hmm. And I did see that the number of um, Latino kids in state foster care has, um, has jumped quite a bit. Um, and they believe that this jump is due to kind of cases like like that one where kids who've um, been kids of parents who've um, entered here uh, illegally as one of the things that's driving those numbers. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned that this particular um, child who's uh, who's um, was not one of these kids who was separated recently was eventually adopted by a white family. And one of the things that you wrote about in your story here, looking at um, kind of the risk that uh, these kids who have been separated recently might face, is that there are these listservs of people sort of clamoring, um, wanting to adopt these kids. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what these listservs are and and what's on there? Sure. Um, I mean, there are there are a number of um, you know uh, adoption community message boards and forums and 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 private groups on social media, um, and you know those those have been around for you know many years, um, and they they provide a place for adoptive parents or people interested in adoption to gather and kind of ask each other tips, um, and you know there has been a substantial interest. Um, and I think a lot of it is very well intentioned mm-hmm. um, of people who want to help. They see, they've seen pictures of children in these terrible conditions, like in cages and sleeping under, um, you know, the space blankets on on the cold floor, and they want to do something to help. So a lot of them have been expressing that interest. Um, one of the uh, adoption leaders who I spoke to, uh, Jed Medifin of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Um, had said that their organization had received substantial interest from members in Mm. adopting. Um, But that's really, that's, it's just not an appropriate answer um, for for these children, Um, as is the case, honestly, for a lot of other uh, children who are prematurely declared orphans in other crises, either man-made or natural around the world. Um, but there is that kind of instinctive desire to want to open up your home and, and help these children. Um, some of it, I think, is, you know, a little less well-intentioned. Uh, there was Fox News host uh, Laura Ingraham, who 
who had, you know, kind of gone back and forth between mocking concern for these children's uh, conditions that they were being kept in and then suggesting that, you know, they should be made more available for adoption. Um, But I think a lot of that interest is sort of natural and well-intentioned, but not the right fit uh, for, you know, the status of these children who do have family Sure. Well, we actually have a clip of what uh, Laura Ingram, who has a lot of followers and a lot of people who watch her show, we have the clip of, of what it was she said. Every country has an obligation to protect its borders and its citizens. So since more illegal immigrants are rushing the border, more kids are being separated from their parents and temporarily housed in what are essentially summer camps, or as the San Diego Union Tribune described them today, is looking like basically boarding schools. Oh, apparently there are a lot of people very upset because uh, we referred to uh, some of the detention facilities tonight as essentially like summer camps. Well, the San Diego Union Tribune today described the facilities as essentially like what you would expect at a boarding school. So I will stick to there are some of them like boarding schools. And I suggest that a lot of the folks who are worried about that spend more time in Central America. I have. And uh, we should make adoption easier for American couples who want to adopt these kids who are true candidates uh, for adoption because our policies don't allow that. So let's, uh, let's put our hearts out there for the kids in the right way. Take care of them the right way. Open your hearts and your homes to them. Yeah, so she's uh, and and she is a, a, an adoptive mother herself. She has adopted kids internationally, um, right? Yeah, so um, there is a, a, there is that community. I think sort of that um, sees this somehow adopting these kids is perhaps um, sa- saving them, offer, offering them a better life uh, here in America, which we've perhaps seen in other instances, kind of through the history, really, of international adoption, where Americans are kind of adopting kids from places that are seen as difficult or poor and the like. Um, Would you say that that there is that element out there? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen this in so many other contexts. Um, A a lot of people that I spoke to in reporting this article um, saw some troubling parallels to the approach uh, to Haiti and, and Haitian children after its devastating 2010 earthquake, um, when we saw just this sort of huge adoption rush. Um, some adoption agencies reported that they were receiving tens of thousands of inquiries about adopting children from Haiti, even though many of the children who were affected by this were not affected by becoming orphans, um, but rather in these ways that are a lot less appealing to people. You know, they, it's a very poor country. Like we need, you know, as always kind of in these situations to be investing more in addressing root causes of poverty, um, rather than just this sort of knee jerk reaction that, uh, we're going to help by removing children from poor countries and in many cases, poor families. You know, one of the other things, um, that I've seen out there that, the concern is that um, in these instances, and we've seen a lot of stories that say, you know, that the families maybe don't have the money to make their way to pick up the kids in the location mm-hmm. where they've been placed, or there are a lot of um, parents that have already been adopted that somehow um, you'll have a scenario where one of these kids that has been brought into a foster home who's maybe been there for a little while now will have established 
uh, a relationship with the family and that um, there'll be pressure applied, if you will, to the to the families to sort of to give up the kids to say, well, at this point, they're better off. I can't get from Honduras back to the U.S., that sort of thing. Um, are you hearing that from people who keep tabs on this system, that that's a concern? Yeah, absolutely. There's um, among sort of uh, child welfare reform advocates and adoption reform advocates, uh, which is a community that's actually largely composed of adult adoptees um, who have experienced this firsthand. Um, there's really significant concern that, especially in cases where some of these uh, transitional foster families um, may have been fostering a young child, uh, that attachments are are going to grow. Um, you know, we've al- already seen um, this heartbreaking mm-hmm. stories that some of the children who have been reunified, some of the young children didn't recognize mm-hmm. their parents um, because they had been separated them for months and they were young and uh, the act of separation is inherently extremely traumatizing for children. Um, but there are, you know, a lot of a lot of adoption reform advocates and and other people, just concerned observers who are concerned that people are going to get attached to these young kids um, that they're fostering and they're not going to want to give them up. Um, or that, you know, in some cases, these children may be declared abandoned and that's going to pave the way um, to declare these children legally orphans and thus available for adoption. Yeah. And what have you heard just from the people, from the adoption agencies themselves and those who would be responsible for facilitating potentially these kinds of um, adoptions? How have they, what have they, what have they been saying? Sure. Well, I I think one that has um, received a lot of attention is Bethany Christian Services, uh, which has been fostering uh, children in in Michigan and uh, Maryland, and I believe possibly another location. Um, you know, but they they were one of the first uh, adoption agencies and foster care uh, providers um, that was you know recognized as as taking in some of these children. Um, and there has been you know there have been a lot of kind of questions and and some accusations that Bethany may be preparing to uh, facilitate the adoptions of these children. I think it's very premature to say that they've been pretty, you know, outspoken in saying uh, that, that they don't agree with the family separation policy um, and that, you know, they are, they are working to reunify these children. Um, So I I think, you know, it's, it's premature to say that, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in the adoption reform community who have taken issue with some of their adoption practices, both domestically and internationally in the past. And that's that is where some of the concern has come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it it just it's important to, in all of these cases, not just with Bethany, but, you know, more importantly, kind of with the federal government and, you know, with some of the, the grantees that ORR is working with that we we pay attention in the long term, because if there is an adoption threat, that is probably where it's going to emerge. These these kids will, I, I don't expect that they're going to be, you know, available for adoption uh, next week or next month. Um, if they are, those would be things that would likely happen down the road. So I think we just need to kind of maintain our interest and and not not forget about this story once it passes from the headlines. 
For sure. And we also did reach out to Bethany Christian Services, and they have said that they do not plan to have any of these um, children adopted, that they are pursuing the reunification. Uh, Catherine Joyce is a freelance journalist and author of The Child Catchers, Rescue Trafficking, and The New Gospel of Adoption. Her latest piece, The Threat of International Adoption for Migrant Children Separated from Their Families, was co-published by The Intercept and the Nation Institute Investigative Fund. Thanks so much for your work and uh, what you're doing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about what happened earlier today at the NATO summit. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. This morning at an unscheduled press conference, President Trump had this to say at the NATO summit. But this was a fantastic two days. This was a really fantastic. It all came together at the end. And yes, it was a little tough for a little while. But ultimately, you can ask anybody at that meeting, They're really liking what happened over the last two days. There's a great, great spirit leaving that room. That statement came after a flurry of headlines this morning saying that Trump had threatened to leave NATO. We're going to talk about what happened during the two-day summit now with David Hershenhorn. He's chief Brussels correspondent for Politico. Before that, he spent 20 years with The New York Times as Moscow and Washington correspondent. And he was at that press conference this morning. Thanks for joining us, David Hershenhorn. Sure. Um, so, David, uh, you were there, and for those of us here who've just sort of seen, you know, since yesterday, kind of this constant um, running sort of stream of critique, really, uh, and then there was the um, kind of joyful, no, it's all been great uh, moment earlier. Um, what exactly was that like when that happened, and what was the reaction there? Well, it's quite stunning, and I don't know about you, but a lot of uh, reporters here feel a bit dizzy uh, watching this. You know, we've had two days of Trump veering sort of back and forth between harsh, harsh criticism of NATO allies. Uh, At a breakfast uh, yesterday morning, he unloaded on Germany, uh, really laced into them over a gas line uh, project, pipeline project with Russia. Uh, Then he comes out with Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, later in the day and says what a tremendous relationship uh, he has with her and with Germany. Right. We hear days of two days of criticism of the NATO allies. And then he decides uh, right before leaving to declare victory and say that uh, spending is going way up Mm -hmm. as a result of his uh, pressure. Yeah, I mean, really, if um, kind of leading up to the summit and um, up until that kind of moment earlier today, 
you know, you really sort of got the feeling like he actually kind of hates uh, Europe. Um, and, you know, you've written quite a lot about sort of this relationship he's had with the Europeans. And what do you think is behind this sort of antagonism that he has? Well, this is really, it seems, part of his original campaign message, right? It's a make America great again, put America first. Uh, 70 years of a very strong transatlantic alliance has unraveled to a large degree in just the first 18 months of Trump's presidency. Uh, the Europeans are quite dismayed. There's not much they can do about it. They know they've sort of decided that the best they can do is try to dial down the tension and wait him out. Uh, you know, the, the good thing about the American democratic system they know is that there are future elections and if they wait long enough, there'll be a future president, but they really don't see how they can interface with him in a way that brings any sort of predictability. I mean, it's the unpredictability around Trump that is the most upsetting uh, to European leaders. The fact that they can't rely on uh, his positions being consistent from one day to the next. Uh, this NATO summit is not uh, the first that he's completely upended. Remember in Quebec mm-hmm. at the G7 summit just last month, right? He had agreed to a final declaration by the leaders. And only after he left, he was on Air Force One on his way to Singapore to meet the North Korean leader. And he starts tweeting furiously, repudiating the, the very declaration that he had signed on to uh, before leaving. So uh, they know and they're bracing now, you know, what might happen, you know, as he heads off to the U.K., for a state visit there, will he hear you know some of the leaders contradicting his own uh, assessments and turn around and do something else to uh, or say something else to destabilize this alliance? Again, he's meeting in just a few days with the Russian president Vladimir Putin, and you know one thing you do hear consistently from the allies is, hey, if there's anything they need, it's a strong, consistent message toward Russia right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm curious whether you know one of the things that seem to be on display at this summit, you know, you write about that they adjusted, they've adjusted the way the summit gets um, held and the scheduling to sort of meet Trump's um, need for sort of shorter meetings and the like. Um, And we've seen kind of over the, you know, past months attempts to really kind of cater to to Trump's style, whether it was when he was in France and they had a parade, um, this sort of thing. Do Do you get a sense, having been at this summit where um, there was really the sort of full court press kind of antagonism that this will shift the way that European leaders um, work with him moving forward? Well, you know, in this case, this is a formal NATO leader summit. They happen once uh, every other year, every two years. And in fact, there's not much they could do to cater to him because they had real business to take care of. And we saw the results where um, at this breakfast yesterday, which is not part of the summit, you know, he just teed off on Germany. Then when he got here to NATO headquarters, he left the first meeting after about 40 minutes to do private meetings with Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. Now, that's not uncommon, but Merkel and Macron went right back in. Trump didn't go back into the meeting at all. Mm-hmm. He stayed out. Uh, there were leaders who had come, you know, especially with presentations that were meant largely for his ears about ways in which they're contributing to the alliance. He wasn't there for any of it. And in fact, uh, the defense secretary, James Mattis, and, uh, and the secretary of state, uh, Pompeo, had left with him, leaving the American uh, ambassador to NATO, Kay Bailey Hutchison, in the chair. Then you have today, where he comes in late to a meeting with the leaders of Ukraine and Georgia. All the other NATO leaders are in there. Uh, there are other partner nations that are in there. And he tees off again about NATO spending, mm-hmm. totally not on the agenda, something that they thought they'd settled and dealt with yesterday. And so the reaction from Europe... Uh, European allies is that this is a guy who has no respect 
for protocol, no understanding of how diplomacy works, and they really don't know what to do other than uh, wait out the storm. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm talking with David Hershenhorn. He's chief Brussels correspondent for Politico, and we're talking about what happened at the NATO summit. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, a lot of people have said is that Trump, you know, doesn't understand um, that what's important about uh, the allies and NATO in particular is the relationship that we have with them. It's not so much the the particular deal, whether it is getting them to up spending or a particular agreement, but it is sort of the long term relationship. Um, Do you get the sense from talking with Europeans there that they feel like that long term relationship has been fundamentally changed? There's no question. And, And in fact, they're preparing for this. I mean, this is something that Trump may not really understand, but I think there are people around him who do grasp this, that in fact, he is redrawing the geopolitical landscape in ways that will not be reversible uh, for his uh, successors, that Europe is realizing it needs to stand on its own. Uh, The EU has typically viewed itself as purely a soft power. As much as it's a major market, 500 million people, um, you know, the biggest trading partner of the United States, uh, certainly hugely influential on the geopolitical stage, hard power is not something that that Europe has ever really... uh, been known for in the post-war stage, right? This is why Europe looks to the U.S. to lead in Syria or for the U.S. to lead in the war on terror. That's changing. They're now allocating billions and billions of euros to build up their cooperation and defense capabilities. And as that happens, as Europe develops into more of a hard power, the influence of the United States will, by definition, be reduced. So there are aspects here where Trump can complain about how much um, the U.S., spends on its military much more than other countries. But that obviously lets the U.S. make a lot of decisions that in the future may have to be made jointly or where it won't be able to sort of command the immediate loyalty and cooperation of allies who will turn around and say, hey, hey, we're paying for this. We're doing this on our own. Mm -hmm. If we want to, we're not necessarily going, going your way, pal. Yeah, I mean, and and just in terms of the defense spending, I mean, right now um, they rely on the U.S., but it also means purchasing of you know U.S. Uh, military hardware and the like. And if they do shore up the spending um, and and become uh, more independent, is there any sense that the U.S. will down the road regret that aspect that they have actually created a more powerful Europe? Well, there's no question that when you get into these kinds of trade wars, uh, as, as Trump is uh, doing, you're, you're neglecting the fact that what you hope is consumers are out there buying the best products. So Trump today claimed that you know, the U.S. makes the best equipment you know, up and down the line. But if he's pushing a, a buy American line, then you can expect the Europeans to push a buy European line, uh, the Chinese the same, right? There is a, a sort of a zero-sum quality to this where – He's, he's sort of pushing them into a corner where, by necessity, their own voters, their own constituents, their own taxpayers will expect that Europe will look to European vendors for its military needs. You know, that's potentially a source of conflict. Uh, the U.S. has started to criticize this effort at increased military cooperation within the EU, in part because they realize that will lead to less U.S. control and influence, but also likely less spending on uh, U.S. Uh, military hardware. Um, so you mentioned uh, the 
Putin. And uh, that's Trump is in the UK tomorrow. And then he heads to a meeting with uh, Putin. And he spoke about uh, that relationship this morning at the press conference. Well, he's a competitor. He's been very nice to me the times I've met him. I've been nice to him. He's a competitor. You know, somebody was saying, is he an enemy? He's not my enemy. Is he a friend? No, I don't know him well enough. But the couple of times that I've gotten to meet him, we got along very well. You saw that. Um, I hope we get along well. I think we get along well. Uh, But ultimately, he's a competitor. He's representing Russia. I'm representing the United States. So in a sense, we're competitors, not a question of friend or enemy. He's not my enemy. And hopefully someday, maybe he'll be a friend. It could happen. But I, don't, I just don't know him very well. I've met him a couple of times. And when I did meet him, most of you people were there. So in that same moment, you described him, he's just a competitor, not necessarily friend or foe, um, that this was just going to kind of be a loose meeting coming up. Um, How much anxiety then is there among the leaders in Europe about this upcoming meeting that he is going to offer some sort of unilateral concession to Putin? Well, there's a huge amount of anxiety, but you have to first understand what a victory that is for Putin just in what Trump said today, Mm -hmm. that Uh, He is a competitor describing Russia and the U.S. in similar terms, as if these are equal powers in an equal competition. Remember, there were points as the relationship with Russia grew more and more tense, uh, given the military intervention by Russia and Ukraine, where President Obama and his administration basically began to treat Russia as a fading regional power, not to give Putin the um, satisfaction of Uh, treating him with the kind of uh, respect and fear that went with the Cold War when it was the Soviet Union. And so Trump here is describing Putin as this equal competitor. You know, there's a recognition that while Russia was kicked out of the G8, it became the G7 because of its invasion and annexation of Crimea and its intervention in Ukraine. In fact, Russia would have no place in the G8 if you were to expand the G7 based on the normal economic uh, qualifications. This is not a country that necessarily ranks. And yet, Trump is out there treating Putin in this regard. I mean, you have to also consider the insult that the European leaders, the allied leaders feel when he says, and he repeated this again, he said it before he left Washington and repeated it again today, that he's at NATO, which is, he described as, you know, a struggle with a bunch of headaches, and the UK, which is in turmoil, and he talks about Brexit, he said, I'm going to all these hotspots, He said, and then I'm going to see Putin. Putin may be the easiest of them all. That's right. How should the prime minister of of the United Kingdom or the chancellor of Germany or the president of France or the prime minister of Italy react when you have the president of the United States saying he's going to have an easier, more comfortable time with the president of Russia than the president of uh, the leaders of these allied countries that have been, you know, arm in arm with the United States since uh, the end of World War II? It's really quite remarkable if you just take a small breath and a a little bit of a step back and and understand exactly what it is he's saying and put it in any sort of historical context. It'll be quite something to watch. David Hershenhorn is chief Brussels correspondent for Politico. Before that, he spent 20 years with the New York Times as Moscow and Washington correspondent. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about the NATO summit and the future of EU-US relations. Coming up after the break, we'll revisit the theme of adoption with a BBC story about Romanian orphans. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in for Jerome McDonald. Earlier in the day, we talked about how children who were separated from their parents at the border could be exploited for adoption in this country. We'll go back to another crisis that eventually led to controversial adoptions in the U.S., the fall of the Soviet Union. In 1989, communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu was overthrown in Romania. And as the country opened up to the outside world, news emerged about children living in subhuman conditions in the country's orphanages. For the BBC program Witness, Lucy Burns talked with a Romanian who was once one of those orphans. When communism fell and media went to cover the story, there were some medias that actually found institutions, institutions that were never meant to be discovered by the public or the outside world. It left the world in shock that such conditions even existed. The pictures were harrowing. Skinny, wide-eyed children covered in dirt, some tied to beds or cots, some rocking back and forth, all showing visible signs of neglect. Those of us who visited these institutions built by the communist regime are unlikely ever to forget them. Hundreds of children not so much cared for as contained. Isidore Ruckel wasn't an orphan, but like many of the children in these institutions, his parents had left him to be looked after by the Romanian state. Well, at the age of six months old, I became ill, and my parents took me to a hospital. But instead of finding healing at a hospital, I actually ended up being infected with polio. My parents took me to a different hospital. They never came back. So the state put me in an institution for handicapped children. It was known as the Kaminspital Pentru Deficient Copi, which translates to Home Hospital for the Irrecoverable Children. The homes for irrecoverable or disabled children had some of the grimmest conditions. What's in this room, no one could prepare for. Filthy, dark and stinking. There's excrement everywhere. These boys are the most difficult cases. They deserve the best of care. Instead, they get the worst. No one knows precisely how many children were in institutions in Romania, but there were disproportionately more than in other countries. Dictator Nicolae Ceausescu had banned birth control, aiming to boost the population. But living standards and wages were low, and so many of the extra children were abandoned to state institutions in almost medieval conditions. The heating's antiquated. Fuel is scarce. The children's heads are shaved. That keeps off lice and fleas. Medication and antibiotics are virtually impossible to get. I felt like we were repeating history year after year for nine years straight. We were just wild animals that needed to be caged up. This child, like many others here, is tied to his cot for several hours a day. The staff say restraints are needed because there simply aren't enough carers to cope with the workload. The children had no education, little encouragement, barely any play. Staff members were overstretched and undertrained, and many took their frustrations out on the children in their care. The staff sure enjoyed beating the heck out of us. At the time, we did not know any better. But you had to wonder, if these people have their own kids, is this how they really treat the kids at home too? And the children learned from their example. I was vicious too. At a very young age, I learned how to control kids. The workers realized pretty quickly, well, geez, this guy can't be that retarded. So they started putting me in charge. And when kids misbehaved, I would beat them. 
just like the workers beat us. Over time, some of the staff members became fond of Isidore and began to take him away from the home for day trips. And after the end of communism in 1989, conditions in the home began to improve. All life did transform and change for the better. Uh, new director, new staffing. We were taken outside. We were given a kindergarten education. We started to expand our mind. But what changed life most for Isidore and many others was that when pictures of the children in the homes reached the West, there was a flood of offers to adopt them. The exodus is underway. Romania has precious little that the world wants except its children. These are the children soon to start a new life far from their real parents. Some orphanages have been emptied already. The best and the brightest are the first to be chosen. Ten months after the fall of Ceausescu, a news crew from the American network ABC came to Isidore's orphanage. Their film, under the title Shame of a Nation, shocked the US. One of the many people who saw it was documentary maker John Upton, who started to campaign for American families to adopt Romanian children from the institutions. John Upton kept coming back, kept coming back. To us, he was like our saviour, really. He began videotaping kids, hoping to find families for them in the U.S. or bring them over on a medical visa. 11-year-old Isidore was charming, outgoing, keen to talk to the visitors and volunteers. His video by John Upton caught the eye of an American couple. Well, I was adopted by a family in Southern California in San Diego, Marlis and Daniel Ruckholm. They saw the video uh, that John Upton has showed them of me, and he tried to explain to them, this child is severely damaged. He's handicapped and he's retarded. And by then my parents pretty much said, well, we will take him just as he is. At that point, all Isidore knew about America was from watching the soap opera Dallas on the institution's TV. And he was concerned by rumours that the couples flooding to Romania to adopt orphans might not be all they seemed. First person to have left the institution was a girl who was blind and... Very quickly after she left, a rumor spread in Romania like a wildfire. Kids were being taken to America for trafficking or sold for organ parts. And for a long time, I believed it as well until I came to America and realized, oh my gosh, all these kids that came before me are alive. Here they are at the airport. Isidore arrived in San Diego, California in 1991, welcomed by other children who'd already been adopted and their parents. But adapting to a new country and life in a family wasn't easy. It was difficult pretty quickly, actually. Three days after I had come to America, I had already got into an argument with my mom over a seatbelt. It was her birthday, so she took us to McDonald's, and she wanted me to wear the seatbelt. And I just kept arguing. I did not want a seatbelt on, because in Romania, we don't do this. So finally, she just went back home. We turned into a big argument that first day. And things stayed hard throughout Isidore's teenage years. I could not adapt into a family environment. I got angry. I became super bitter. I was desperate to go back to Romania. I even wrote letters asking the workers if they would let me stay with them till I was 18 years old. And each and every single one of them said no. Isidore moved out of his adoptive parents' house at 17. He went back to Romania for the first time, aged 21, when ABC News arranged for him to meet his birth parents. I tried to understand my mom. I tried to get to know her, but unfortunately, you know, I don't think that my mom understands that I'm not the one that abandoned you. You are the one that abandoned me. 
Isidore took up public speaking to advocate for children's rights and tell the story of his life in the orphanage. He's returned to Romania several times, but he's haunted by the thought of what his life would be like if he had stayed. I would either be in an Norfolk home on the streets or absolutely dead. There's so many kids who are just kicked out of the system. When you see a grown adult sitting or standing, rocking back and forth, you can instantly recognize that person grew up in an orphanage. Isidore now lives in Colorado. He's written an autobiography and made a documentary about his experiences. He's now working on turning his memories into a feature film. But somehow, he still misses the orphanage. I do miss the institution at times. And people don't understand that because they've never experienced it. It's what we're used to. That's where we grew up. It's our home. (laughs) Isidore Ruckel was speaking to me, Lucy Burns, for Witness. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about Trump's visit to the UK. Protests are already underway there. That's tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, with production assistance from Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein. Mike Gilmore and Kyle White Sullivan engineered today's show. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.